Our second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the 14th verse of the first chapter. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, a young for a beautiful and affordable home, put a challenge to the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Could he build them a nice home for around $5,000? That's about $85,000 today. Wright's response, I've been waiting for years for someone to ask me that question. Frank Lloyd Wright relished the challenge of building an affordable and beautiful custom home because he had a vision to make custom homes more democratic, available to people in any price range, including middle and working class Americans. Wright had a name for this vision. He called it Usonia, a word that for him was an idealized vision of the United States at its democratic zenith. Usonia would be a nation filled with modest but comfortable and well-made homes for the middle and working classes. Wright would design these homes with natural, local materials, build them, as he did so well, to exist harmoniously with the landscape, and create spaces in them where people would regularly encounter the beauty of the natural world. Wright's vision was grounded in his firm belief that the buildings we live in shape the people we are. Now, we may not see the world through the eyes of Frank Lloyd Wright, but if we're honest, most of us would have to admit that the places we live in, the places we call home, they matter. We pay attention to them and care for them because they shape us. This was true even for the young King David thousands of years ago. In the years before he became Israel's king, David had spent plenty of time in temporary dwellings. Some of them were tents on fields of battle. Others were caves where he hid from his enemies. In today's scripture, David has finally settled into a house of cedar. In other in other words, a structure of relative permanence and even luxury. But having this home has gotten David thinking. If he lives in a secure and stable house, shouldn't God have a home as well? In the ancient Near East, it was customary for rulers to build extravagant residences for the gods they worshipped. They would build temples on the highest places of the holy cities so that people from near and far could see evidence of the king's devotion to his god. That's part of what prompts David to propose constructing a temple to the Lord. It is a mark of his devotion and loyalty. But it also seems to be a way for David to assuage the uneasiness he feels at having a permanent home when the ark of God, the very presence of God, 
is sheltered by no more than a tent as it moves from place to place. David wants to build God a permanent, majestic, sacred structure. And the last thing he expects is that God will turn it down. But that's exactly what happens. The prophet Nathan, David's main advisor, at first affirms David's idea to build a temple to the Lord, but God quickly instructs Nathan to advise against it. I don't need a house to live in, God says. I don't need a brick and mortar structure because there is no human made structure in which I can be contained. Instead, God says, I'm going to make David a house and not a physical structure, a dynasty. Your kingdom, God says, the house of David will be a people with whom and in whom I choose to dwell, not just here and now, always and everywhere. 20 years ago, the first time I visited my husband's parents, they were living at the time in Houston, Texas, and I fell in love with their house, a comfortable and beautiful ranch in a neighborhood of tree-lined streets. I always looked forward to visiting and being the recipient of my in-laws' thoughtful and gracious hospitality. But after we'd been married for just a couple of years, they announced they were moving. They no longer needed so much space and they wanted to live closer to where they worked. The first time I visited them in their new home, my expectations were low. But within an hour of my arrival, I realized the error of my judgment. I thought what made visiting them so enjoyable was their house. But that wasn't it. The feeling of comfort and security I'd experienced in their first home wasn't because of the house at all. It came from being with them. They have since moved two more times, and I now know for certain that wherever they live will feel like a home to me, not because of the house, but because of the people in it. With a few exceptions, the truth is the places we live get an inordinate amount of our attention. Isn't this why so many of us are drawn to all the shows on HGTV and the home magazines and the websites that show us how we can organize, design, and beautify our living spaces so that they feel more like an idealized version of home? Maybe this very human desire to have secure and permanent and beautiful spaces to live in is one reason why God wants David and us to know that there is nowhere we can go where God is not. We can create beautiful, even sacred spaces, but there is simply no way to confine God to any human structure, no matter how sacred that place may be. Wherever we go, whatever place we call home, God is there. In turning down David's offer to build a grand temple, God chooses instead to work through David and his descendants to make the whole world God's home. 
a place of extravagant love and steadfast mercy and justice for all. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to transform David like a house in an episode of Fixer Upper into a more presentable, polished version of himself. In fact, David will go on to make some profound mistakes as Israel's king, including murder and adultery. That's actually what makes David such a wonderful model for us, because he is deeply flawed, and yet he is the one God chooses to lead God's people. And this home, this dynasty God promises to David, it is not one built out of cedar or stone. It is a home made out of grace, fashioned from the unconditional love and steadfast mercy of the God who chooses to dwell with David in every circumstance of his life and his reign. This is God who ultimately chooses to make a home with us by inhabiting the very body of one of David's ancestors, one that is not born to a royal family, but to unwed teenage parents, one born not in a palace, but in a borrowed stable. The writer of John's Gospel states this astonishing truth this way, the Word became flesh and lived among us. In his translation, The Message, Eugene Peterson renders that verse, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It is not up to us to make a home for God or to make of our earthly homes something perfected and always presentable. For God is already at home, in us, with us, working through us to make the whole world a home for all of God's children. The poem, Small Kindnesses, by Danusha Lemaris Givis, tells us what it looks like to do just that. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by, or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them, and for them to smile back. For the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire, only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat, go ahead, you first. I like your hat. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that the buildings we live in shape the people we are, and so do we. 
but what would it look like to live as though it is not the buildings we live and work and worship in that matter most, but the God who lives in us, the God who cannot be contained in any box or building. God chooses to make a home with us by making a home in us, that we might reveal God in the simplest of actions, in the briefest encounter of one human being with another. God has chosen to dwell here with us and in us. We are God's home. Amen.